Um, so, I mean, I, I, as always with these things, there has been work going on behind the scenes kind of in, in advance. But I think that the basis of this thing is that there are more and more people walking around with this basically kind of terrified sense of what is going on to life as a whole. They've watched the same problems be talked about for decades by politicians that, that in fact, while giving the impression that they're keen on dealing with the problems, actually amplify those very problems. So fast forward to 2018, we have an ocean crisis, deforestation through the roof, soil fertility declining at catastrophic rates, a looming freshwater crisis, um, and a massive extinction crisis, um, a report about which came out recently saying that it's a crisis on the level of climate change. And we, of course, have, have the climate crisis uh, in the context of the IPCC report, whose very, very rosy take on the science and huge chunks of negative emissions give us uh, uh, 12 years to have a 50% cut in carbon emissions in the rich countries. And nothing like that is remotely even kind of talked about seriously in policy terms or, or put on the table or, or, you know, communicated to the public. And as I say, that's the, the rosy science of the IPCC, um, which still basically imagines that fantasy speculative technologies are going to suck hundreds of billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere in the latter half of the century. So, so to cut to the chase in climate terms, when we're demanding zero carbon emissions by 2025, um, that if we're serious about 1.5 degrees, that gives us an outside chance, given that poor countries have to have longer to be able to build that infrastructure and all the rest of it um, before they can get their carbon emissions down. You know, in other words, we are in a, a, a extinction crisis in the broader sense. And, and while it's vital that, you know, crazy things like fracking and tar sands and all these things are opposed in every conceivable way, that is nowhere near enough. We need a transformation of our energy system, our food system, etc. And many people are, as I say, carrying this knowledge. And so a movement that came along saying, this is what we know, this is the truth, we have to get out there and we have to come up with some form of disruption potentially commensurate to that crisis that I think that those factors effectively kind of resonated with the, the, the very disturbing understanding that many people now have. And so I think that's why it kind of touched such a chord and was able to mobilize thousands of people in a very short time to take potentially arrestable action, which is a real evolution of this movement. Not that direct action movements haven't used um, arrestable um actions as, as a key part of their, their strategy but it, but this is a movement has appealed to people directly in terms of asking them whether they would be prepared to you know put their freedom on the line in some ways and that i think kind of gives us a, a potential trump card over the authorities and their ability to suppress the movement it's uh nearly uh 10 years on since the uh i guess what uh, many on the sort of the liberal left consider historic uh copenhagen uh cop summit uh since then we've had uh constant uh i, I guess compromises from uh, many of the governments of the world and of course we've had the uh, the paris agreements uh almost been uh, blatantly rejected uh, from people such as uh donald trump it, it it's it's sort of uh, i guess sad and also remarkable that we, we've got this far without more actions like this, you know, and I don't want to discount uh, the many, uh, you know, campaigners and activists and, and normal people that have taken ex- uh, extraordinary action. But is this is this part of, I think, what is driving uh, this Extinction Rebellion is that people are just fed up of uh, waiting for the United Nations or perhaps even waiting for, uh, you know, some of the more liberal NGOs and uh, social democratic governments to act when uh, clearly, 
you know, the the, the things such as the, uh, the the cop talks are not actually uh, addressing this issue in a way that it needs to be addressed. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. The 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 Guardian journalist George Monbiot, um, who's been one of the most the sort of powerful broadcasters of, of this movement, uh, he's been writing about it since the, the launch on the thirty first of October, uh, and his article um, was was tweeted by Bernie Sanders, which has really helped spread awareness in America. Um, I think, as he, as he said, we've had thirty years of in inverted commas a good start from those in power. And the problem is that the mainstream environmental movement, in, in terms of the NGOs, has a very predictable script where anything that looks as if it's slightly better than before, they come out with the same basic communication strategy, which is to say, we're encouraged because this looks like a step in the right direction, but we still have concerns that it's not being dealt with at scale, etc. So you just have this kind of drip feed of failure that's, that's dressed up as success. Um, and, and I think the other huge factor here, and which which I think makes from the point of view of those those of us trying to do something about this, makes it very understandable why we are where we are, is that in the era of what Naomi Klein called disaster capitalism, you know, and, and add austerity and the financial crisis and everything that's done to create so many different problems in society, is that that we very understandably end up just firefighting the worst aspects of this thing, and so unfortunately the message that gets to the public. Um, is mainly about those worst aspects and not about the system as a whole. So absolutely fracking is a you know monstrous thing to be considering at this point in the UK. Um, you know, especially with all the you know the local health and environmental implications, etc. Um, but it is just one part of the problem. It is just the latest thing that that, that the government is trying to push us. Uh, to trying to sort of push us into even further away from any kind of sane look at the whole system, which is basically fossil fuel based with, you know, some chunks of renewables now added on, that fossil fuel system should have gone already. You know, climate change is already a crime against humanity in terms of drought and floods and, you know, typhoons flattening the Philippines every couple of years now. I mean, it is, is unbelievable what has been done or what has been done eyes wide open by the rich countries over the last 25 years um, to destroy the lives and livelihoods of largely non-white people who've done the least to cause the problem historically, who continue to do the least today. This is the thing, you know, it's not just that we're still burning fossil fuels in the rich countries where we created the problem and we've got money to do something about it. Still today, our emissions per person are you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the emissions of people in the poor countries. And it's worth stressing also, the rich people in the rich countries' emissions are vastly higher than the majority of people. Globally speaking, 10, 10% of people produce 50% of the emissions, and the bottom 70% of people produce only 20% of the emissions. You know, so this is a, a massive problem of injustice um, and, and, you know, moral and existential crisis at a global scale. And, and the first job of this movement is really to try and bring that in its starkness as the real story of reality right now to the general public. And that has to be the first stage in then demanding that governments do effectively what they've already said they're going to do by signing these agreements and take our children's survival seriously. Um, and I think that that is partly a, a powerful message because it's just simply true and and you know a reality that this has, ne has never befallen the human species before you know that we are exponentially destroying the living systems of our planet at a point already of crisis and if we you know if the world carries on business as usual that crisis will amplify extraordinarily in the next 25 years let alone not go where we need it to go
I think uh, you'd have to be, I guess, somewhat naive to look at the last uh, 20 years of sort of history, particularly in places such as the United Kingdom or Australia, in regard to uh, the left and social movements. It hasn't particularly been uh, great for uh, for people that are really want to see systemic change, uh, especially if you compare that to the late 90s and early 2000s when we had massive demonstrations against neoliberal capitalism, such as the demonstrations in Seattle or Genoa, or later, of course, you know, the, the massive mobilizations around things such as the World Social Forum. I, I guess one particular thing I'm interested in terms of Extinction Rebellion is, I guess, the, the nature of those involved and the kind of support that you've received. And also, I, I guess, you know, whether or not you think that it might be an opportunity through, uh, you know, a, a, I guess, a movement such as Extinction Rebellion to bring together, I guess, uh, parts of the left that, uh, unfortunately, for the last 15 or 20 years, have been very fragmented and, and disempowered. Uh, do, do, you, do you feel like, uh, you know, these recent actions did bring together, uh, you know, uh, people from, you know, not just different walks of life, as they say, but bring together the left as a whole uh, to take action? I think, you know, we're, we're, we're still operating at a, at a scale that though we've really made an impact where it would be like premature to say that that, that has happened, but certainly, you know, on, on a national scale, but certainly what is it, what has happened is that people from, you know, from all those different other concerns, if you like, people who've been campaigning against austerity and against the wars and, um, you know, against fracking and against, you know, against all sorts of other things that have been going on have come together in this movement. Um, because I think what what is understood broadly also, and this is the great source of hope, um, is that, um, and, and Naomi Klein, by the way, points out in her first chapter of her book, This Changes Everything, why um, uh, it, it's called Why the Right is Right, that the implications of dealing with the environmental crises that we face um, necessitate what are broadly progressive changes. You know, as soon as you accept that a tiny proportion of people has most of the political power and massively overuses the resources of the planet, then obviously the job is to wrest back that political power from the minority, i.e. the you know, billionaires, corporations, financial markets, etc., and take it back into democratic control. And if we take the environment seriously, clearly the way we distribute resources becomes utterly central. So having a tiny percentage of people dominating the rest in terms of, you know, both power and, you know, ecological, you know, consumption and ecological impact, that has to go. You know, and, and that basically, you know, the, those demands are at the centre of all of the anti-austerity politics and, and most of the other kind of progressive causes. So I think there is, if we act now, now, now at an unprecedented scale, there is a, a, it's still a, 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 an unprecedented chance in the face of existential emergency to, to kind of kick the human species up the proverbial backside into some sort of basic compassionate sanity with, with which most of us already agree in terms of the world we'd like to see um and i think you know it's worth really stressing this point we know a lot from opinion polls that are taken across the world these days about what people feel about about most things and, and what is shared in virtually every country on the planet is a feeling by the majority that they're not represented sufficiently by the powerful elite etc and that they would rather a more equal dispensation and they think we need to take power and money back from corporations of vested interest etc these are kind of unifying themes on left and right so i think we are at a a very powerful moment potentially whereas where if we recognize this real crisis for what it is it could be the means by which we move into a much more decent you know humane compassionate and and potentially you know joyous human 
um, existence, but it's a, a huge ask, and, and I think people in the movement are, are very much aware of that, hence the talk of this kind of outright rebellion that, that is being demanded, um, albeit peacefully and through you know, a lot of strategic thinking about how we can try and you know, use our capacities to, to maximal effect. Certainly. And I guess just uh, finally, I mean, uh, this when I saw this action, it sort of reminded me of uh, a while ago, I was interviewing uh, the author, uh, Derek Jensen, about, uh, I guess, his latest uh, work. And and I asked him sort of, you know, like, given that, you know, as as someone who's been a long-time environmentalist and campaigner, given that we know now that we're uh, facing, potentially facing a sort of a, a global ecocide of sorts, you know, why is it that people, uh, you know, don't don't feel the urgency to act, to, to do, you know, to put themselves on the line and put themselves potentially even in arrestable situations? And I guess his answer to that was that we still believe that we, uh, you know, have something left to lose. And I, I think that's a really, I guess, important point in the fact that a, a lot of this stuff is happening, but we are constantly bombarded by by media and constantly distracted that people don't feel as though, you know, the urgency is somewhat lost. Do you feel that, you know, just from the personal experience of being involved in these actions, that the actual, I guess, the physical reality of, of you know, the, of climate change uh, for the people involved, do you think that really hit home? And do you think that it, you know, is that something that you hope to really uh, impress on people is that this is real and that we can actually and should actually do something that we do, you know, that we don't have anything left to lose and that we, you know, only have only have something to gain? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a, I, I have a lot of respect for Derek Jensen, but at the same time, as somebody that spends my life communicating and trying to work out how best to to find ways to draw people out of the the sort of anxiety-driven denial they're in, I, I yeah, I have a slight, I have a slightly different take on it. I think most people they don't get it, you know, that they, they kind of get it on some level. They've heard some really scary things said about climate change, but I think. Um, basically, because of the, the the sort of almost sort of ideological stance within the, the movement to try and change things about how you have to communicate that you can't tell people scary things because then they'll switch off. So you have to say artificially positive things. Effectively, you know, I think people have been given a range of stories on the environment, and not surprisingly, given the human nature that we all share, a lot of people lacking any really sort of specific knowledge and any really kind of categorical take on how bad things are you know take the 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 mainstream line i think most people can be genuinely forgiven for thinking um that you know the main problem with climate change at the moment is just that donald trump's pulled out the paris agreement so we just need to get him back in there and then we're kind of all right aren't we you know the 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 mainstream media um broadcast pictures of kind of jubilant people from across the world you know at the at the the Paris summit, kind of cheering that they've got this great agreement and all the rest of it. Um, And of course, the media being driven largely by the interests of the, the, especially in this country and uh, in the UK and Australia, driven by the interests of right-wing billionaires that own it, driven, you know, on on a similarly significant level by the corporate funding that pays for it through advertising. Um, In the case of the BBC and other, you know, public broadcasters, often state broadcasters, you know, influenced by the, the... vested interest that influence government and people just hadn't been told the truth about this stuff so i think it's not it's not just that people still think they have something left to lose i think they they don't really get it you know they might get it on some level but so our main job is to make sure that people do get it um 
but I think also, you know, we are kind of short to medium term creatures to a large extent, you know, in the wealthier parts of the world, as many people are perhaps not that overtly aware a lot of the time, but, but, certainly, but certainly clearly aware nonetheless. People do have a lot, a lot more to lose. You know, like their their kids for now, right in front of them, seem to be able to have food on the table and yada yada. And because this, the the economic system conspires to move resources to people that have the money to pay for them, when there are crises of production, as has been, you know, as have happened in terms of food crops in the last decade a number of times, because you know climate fueled catastrophes have wiped out. Um, grain crops and all the rest of it, that kind of giant jump in global market prices for wheat or, or whatever it is, you know, may convert to 10p more on a packet of pasta or, or bread in the shop, 10 cents more or whatever, but it's not something that registers on, a, on an existential level. Um, and I, I highly recommend to your listeners a, a book I read years ago that's really fascinating and has sort of form, been quite formative in my understanding. It's called Vital Lies, Simple Truths. And it's about how in human beings there's this fundamental trade-off between attention and anxiety, so that things that make us upset we push away from from awareness. Um, and and the, the the key the key thing to understand about the the sort of neuroscience around this stuff is that those decisions about what to allow into attention are made pre-consciously. So I think those of us that are most upset and grieving at the kind of destructive madness that they see on the planet and all the suffering it creates I think can very easily uh, imagine that other people just you know they, they know what's going on and they just don't care because they you know they just want more stuff and yada yada but I think it is more complicated than that I think people are genuinely kind of in, in unconscious denial of what is you know is certainly known somewhere in their being um, because it freaks the hell out of them and they haven't been given a story about it which gives them a sense of what they can do about it and where we might be able to you know bring about solutions to try and handle it and that that's the the key thing about um what we're trying to do as opposed to the the, the approach of many attempts to change things certainly in the mainstream in the last few decades is what we call emergency messaging um and i'd highly recommend anyone listening to look up jane morton emergency on youtube um and she talks about the basics of this, that, you know, in lots of areas of, of society, we take for granted, you know, anti-smoking campaigns or whatever, you know, the approach is to say, don't smoke, this is what it will do to you, you know, it could you know, kill you. And then what about your children? But here's how you can do it. You know, we'll help you and into the bargain, you'll be able to do more exercise and you feel healthier and have more energy and your kids will love you more and yada yada, you know. So there's a, there is a kind of very well understood playbook about how you, try and communicate things that are scary and and because people have have been stuck in this kind of binary of like oh well you can't scare people because they don't want to hear it so you just have to tell them artificially positive things we've ended up conspiring with this kind of ambiguity um that, that hasn't certainly hasn't helped people see through the lies of of the you know the fossil fuel funded denial industry etc um, clearly enough so I think that's, you know, our main job is to certainly convey the truth about how bad things are, but equally convey the truth that, you know, small groups of people, when they're prepared to put their freedom on the line, really have much more power than they realise. And that the world at the moment is this in this sort of tragic state, but with a lot of potential in that we basically have the energy system going on as before with these kind of poisonous 20th century technologies and the farming system that's destroying the soil and the trees and the birds and the insects, etc., that sort of 
you know, mildly evolved um, from the 1950s. But meanwhile, there are a thousand examples technologically and in terms of our understanding, kind of on the edge of that mainstream economy that demonstrate how we could be doing things radically differently in virtually every part of society. You know, that actually the change that, that we're talking about would unleash a wave of, of you know, innovation and transformation of the kind that, that we've never seen before. Um, and would give us by, you know, mainly focusing on kind of restoring nature in the best possible way and using energy efficiently and, you know, clean technologies, green chemistry, green biology, all this kind of stuff, you know, we would give ourselves the, a chance not just of preventing this, this destruction of the world for our children, but also a much nicer world in all sorts of ways. And so I think that's the, that's the key message that, that it's, it, it's really important that we share with each other as much as possible. One of the questions that we found in terms of, of communicating this is, or one of the balances we've tried to strike is between really um, emphasizing the narrative of, of how powerful people can be by putting themselves on the line and trying to inspire people about civil, civil disobedience. But it's also very important that, you know, so we want as many people hopefully to, to be up for that, but it's also very important that it doesn't sound as if we're we're only saying that we want people to be involved if they're ready to to put their freedoms directly on the line. This is, of course, a movement for for everybody.